Welcome to Urban Dharma, the podcast, where suffering is optional. Hi, this is Reverend Kusla coming to you from downtown Los Angeles, from the International Buddhist Meditation Center in the heart of Koreatown. This is Class 3, Part 1 of a series of talks I gave at Loyola Marymount University in the spring of 2007. Uh, the course was uh, about the Eightfold Path. So, you're about to hear Class 3, Part 1. So, Eightfold Path. Uh, last week we talked a lot about morality and ethics. We talked about right speech, right action, right livelihood. We found out that um, when you become an official Buddhist, you take the five precepts, which are training precepts to avoid taking life, to avoid taking what is not given, to avoid sexual misconduct, to avoid lying, to avoid consuming intoxicants. And that was designed to change two of the three aspects of karma, which was speech and action. Tonight, it's meditation, and that's designed to transform our consciousness, our intention karma. The Buddha said at one point, Our intention leads our speech and action into the world. And so the five precepts um, censor or make us aware of speech and action. But now we literally want to change the source of our speech and action. And that's where meditation comes in. And, And if you've read any books on Buddhism, the biggest chapter usually is on meditation. So we're going to talk about it. The Eightfold Path, there are three parts that deal with meditation. They are right effort, right mindfulness, and right concentration. And right effort is how we start to become aware of our consciousness. Uh, The traditional way of looking at right effort goes like this. To prevent unskillful thoughts or intentions from arising, to abandon unskillful thoughts or intentions that have already arisen to develop skillful thoughts or intentions that have not yet arisen to maintain skillful thoughts and intentions that have already arisen and haven't gone away. So you can see what we're really doing is in two very large categories we're becoming aware of skillful and unskillful. And, and, and now we have to have some kind of identification for a skillful thought and some kind of identification for an unskillful thought. So a skillful thought in Buddhism would be one that has its roots in love, has its roots in generosity, has its roots in compassion, has its roots in wisdom. That would be a skillful thought. So if you had a thought... And, and, and you felt it might be rooted in any of those four, we would call that skillful. And if that intention arose through speech and action in the world, the consequences would be of benefit to everyone. That's cool. That's sort of what we're striving for. That's what we're working on. Now we have the other category of unskillful. And unskillful has to do with lust, greed, hatred, and delusion. Those are unskillful uh, intentions. And that 
oftentimes leads our speech and action into the world in a way that uh, is not beneficial to us or anyone around us. So, now we don't need to be really heavy on this, and one of the examples I like to use in my own life is when I go to the supermarket. And, and, and there I am, and I'm on the bakery aisle, you know, and there they are, the cakes and the donuts and all those pastries. And I have enough money in my pocket to buy pretty much what I want to. So how much am I going to get? How much can I eat, you know, before I get sick? And, and is that a skillful thought? Well, I think it's probably based in greed, for one thing, and, and a little bit of delusion as well, um, thinking that all those pastries and cakes are worth the money. Have you ever thought about it in this way? The only part of our body that can taste the food is our tongue. And it's like three or five inches big. So out of all this body... I have like five inches of me that can taste $20 worth of treats. And yet somehow in my mind, it all makes perfect sense. Isn't that odd? So if, if I couldn't taste, would I be in the bakery aisle? Probably not. I would probably be someplace else. So I look at skillful, unskillful. I see that most intentions, most thoughts could probably cross over into a couple of those categories. So now I could say, okay, delusion and greed is the reason I want to take all those wonderful treats home with me. Will that manifest into action? Will I actually go to the shelf and pull down the pastries? Well, it might happen, and I've done this, and maybe you have too, and now you're walking through the other aisles to get the necessities of life, and you say, well, maybe I don't need as much all these donuts. Maybe I could put half of them back. You know, so now the intentions are starting to create other kinds of actions, and our life is becoming a bit more balanced. And it really starts like that. There's no big, I'm not going to kill anybody today because that's unskillful. It usually doesn't work like that. It's just our everyday stuff. Somebody wants to get in um, the uh, lane in front of us on the freeway. Are we going to let them? You know, we have just as much right to be in that place as they do. So where, where does that intention come from? You know? Well, it's um, a little competitive. And is that skillful? Well, probably not. It wouldn't hurt. I mean, a, a car in front of you is not going to prevent you from getting to where you're going to go. So becoming aware of how, the, how your thoughts work, to see what they're rooted in, watching the habit patterns that we've accumulated over all the years we've been alive, sort of manifest and, and direct us without even us being aware of it. So we're really increasing our awareness in a very special way. We're becoming aware not of outside but of inside and how that inside affects the outside. So it starts with right effort. Now we have two kinds of meditation in Buddhism. We have tranquility meditation and we have insight meditation. The story goes like this. The Buddha was taught how to do tranquility meditation by the yogis of India. And then he realized that didn't lead to ultimate liberation, freedom, peace, happiness. 
that kind of meditation seems to be conditional. When all the conditions are correct, meditation occurs. He rediscovered insight meditation, vipassana, which allowed him to achieve nirvana and become free in an unconditional way, to become happy and peaceful in an unconditional way. He did both forms of meditation. In some schools of Buddhism, they emphasize one over the other. And that's fine. We all need to have our stuff, you know. And this is what makes us unique, and this is what makes us special. We have this technique that nobody else does, and it's guaranteed to make you enlightened. And come to our school of Buddhism, we'll be glad to teach you that. So you find that a lot. You find some people that look at tranquility meditation as not being as useful as insight meditation. So there's, um, they're, they're critical. Some people, you know, like myself, have found insight meditation to cause me to be uh, a little too agitated, to have a little too much clarity. And I found by balancing my clarity with tranquility meditation, I was able to like myself more, and other people liked me as well. So I had to design a practice that suited my temperament. And if you go to a book called the Vasudhi Maga, The Path of Purification, one of the chapters is about the teacher deciding for the student what kind of meditation would be most appropriate. The idea is this. We want to come back to that place of balance. So the Buddha might be talking to a monk, and this monk is very lustful attracted to every woman he sees. And the Buddha recommends cemetery meditation. Not so he can hate the body, not so he can hate women, but so he can come back into balance and have a more realistic approach to the opposite sex and his relationship to them. It's about coming back into balance. I was just on the Google News website and found an article speaking about the porn industry choosing HD as a DVD instead of Blu-ray as a DVD. There's a big battle going on. Sony has the Blu-ray. I think Toshiba has the other one. And which one will be? It's like the old VHS and Beta. Which one's going to win out? Well, VHS went out, of course. And Beta, apparently technically, was a better system. But who used it? The porn industry. Now, you know what they said? And I found this so fascinating. They said there's a problem, though, with HD, high definition. It's too clear. You see all the faults. So they're creating software now to tone everything down. (laughs) I love it. And, and, And so meditation is sort of like that, too. If you have too much clarity, you might start to be super critical about everything in your universe. Because you now you see it so clearly, you have no patience, you get agitated and aggravated so easily. And so you sort of want to fine-tune the way you perceive the world. And these meditation techniques allow us to come to a place of balance. So one isn't better than the other, one is different than the other. The Buddha did both, did both of them. 
he continued to do tranquility meditation until the moment he died. He stopped doing insight meditation when he achieved nirvana. He had no more use for the insight meditation. But there still was a use for the tranquility meditation. And you know what that was? That was to bring his body back into balance. Because when you go into deep states of tranquility and one-pointedness, you can anesthetize physical pain. And 2,500 years ago, they didn't have all the medications we have today. You know, they had spices and urine that they'd mix up. I'm thinking, give me the disease. I'm not going for the cure, you know. And this tranquility meditation allowed his body to come back into balance, and he was able to anesthetize physical pain. Very cool. So his last moments on earth, he went into the fourth jhana. And that's where he died, in that very deep that very deep level of one-pointedness with no past and no future and no pain. So, he meditated his whole life. We, if we start our practice, we're going to have to do that too. So, so I wanted to make you aware of that. This is a big commitment. Because if you've been meditating for a couple of years and you think you can stop, you might be disappointed. Because you're going to get used to being a certain way. Maybe more sensitive, have more clarity, more resilient, more kindness, more love, more compassion. And that meditation has something to do with that. And then if you say, well, I'm not going to meditate anymore because I'm going to go back to the way I used to be. I'm tired of this. Because this just means more work and more work. I can never stop. I, can, I have to go forward. There's no place to rest in this meditation practice. I can't ever feel that I'm there. There's always more to do. So I'm just going to stop and go back. Well, we can't go back. Once you start, you can't go back. And when I came to that realization, uh, it was a wake-up call for me. I went, wow, what have I done to my life? <laughs> what, what, what have I done? But, but then, I, then the bigger picture started to materialize for me, and I realized, well, in any part of my life, I could never go back. You know, you can never go home again, that old saying. Well, yeah, that's how it works. That was who we used to be. That's what we used to do. Now we're doing this. Okay, so you just sort of have to, I guess, come to the conclusion that in this life, because it's ever-changing, always in flux, there is no place to stand. There is no place that's secure. You have to keep changing with it all the time. I find that meditation makes me more flexible, not less flexible. More accustomed to change. Not scared of change, but expecting change. And sure enough, everything keeps changing. So when I started meditating, I didn't know it was going to be lifelong until a couple of years into my meditation practice. So I just wanted to warn you. And then there are times in the initially that I found in my meditation practice where I started to resolve some issues. That some stuff I hadn't thought about for years, either suppressed or forgotten, started to surface in my meditation practice. 
And you know, when you're just sitting on the floor for a couple hours and you've got nothing to distract you and that stuff rises and is just right in your face, it can take a certain amount of courage just to be with it and not hate it and not fear it, but just be with it. And if you try to suppress it, it'll come up another way. So I found early on in my meditation practice, there was sort of this dealing with old stuff, getting that out of the way. And nobody told me that. They all told me it was going to be wonderful. You'll feel so much better. And for I was working through this stuff. And I'd feel sad, and I'd feel disappointed, and I'd feel like a failure. And I'd say, how could I have done that? I was 11 years old. What was wrong with me? Didn't you know? Well, I didn't know. That's the problem. I was 11 years old. So, okay, so what, what did I need to do? I needed to have a memorial service for that 11-year-old boy who used to be alive. I needed to finally bury him. I needed to say to myself, he did the best he could do. And some of the stuff he did was just terrible, but that was the best he could do at that moment. And because of him, I'm here today. And what I'm seeing is not me, but the ghosts of that 11-year-old boy. And, and I literally had a memorial service for how I used to be at certain points in my life. So I could not forget them, but I could come to a place of acceptance with that 11-year-old boy's nature. Unskillful or skillful, however you want to call it. So, working, 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 okay. Hadn't intended to go there in my meditation practice. I was just going to meditate. I was just going to feel good. So, a few years down the line, I'm thinking, i got to change my job. Because my meditation practice allows me to see that this may not be right livelihood anymore. I see the pain and suffering I'm causing people. I'm in a competitive um, part of the market, sales. I'm, I'm, I, I can hardly wait to make the big sale. I'm glad when other people fail and lose. It gives me a chance to make up and even get better. And I'm going, oh man, now I'm starting to look at my whole life differently. And I did. I changed my job. I, I quit my job of 10 years. Got in my car, went on the road for three months, Slept on, you know, uh, rest stops and cheap motels and just saw how other people lived. Just sort of looked at the world with those new eyes that I had acquired through my meditation practice. And then I went back and did pretty much the same stuff, but in a different way. Now I had a different relationship with the stuff I used to do. Now it didn't have to define me. I didn't need to be that anymore. I had a choice that I didn't have before. So meditation gives... You have a choice. And if you have enough courage to choose, it can change your life in a very special way. I was really into techniques for a long time as well. And, I, and the more intricate and, and complicated the meditation practice was, the more I liked it because I thought it was a more advanced form of meditation. And, and now my practice is just sitting. I just sit down. I, I don't count my breath. I don't observe my breath. I don't have a mantra. I don't create visualizations for myself. I just sit and become a pane of glass 
transparent, and the universe sort of just flows through me, and I observe that, and I try not to get attached to any of that. And I don't look at the good or bad, or I don't feel good or feel bad. That stuff just arises, and I observe, and it falls away. And something else arises, and I observe, and it falls away. And that's what I do. And then I get up, and I have a cup of coffee. Well, it doesn't sound like you're doing much, does it? I think it works like this. I think what I'm doing is I'm cleaning my hard drives. I've got some fragments there from yesterday or last week that are just floating around on that old hard drive, and now I'm going to just sort of sit down and let that stuff find its proper place. Where does it need to be filed? What category does it need to be filed in? And my subconscious does all that. You know, Sometimes I'll have dreams, and my subconscious will, will resolve some issues that I had when I was awake, and that's cool. I like to dream. My mind is a very good storyteller. I have wonderful dreams, color and action, and sometimes I'm the victor, and sometimes I'm the victim, and sometimes I wake up and I'm sweating and, and just so excited, and then I start my day. Wow. I'm so happy. Meditation does change the way you sleep. People can meditate while they're sleeping. Most cool. This is a life-changing activity, and that's why the Buddha said we need to do it. And you know what? You know what I realized today? Because I was answering some emails today from people that had been listening to my podcasts. And, and, and I, I love the way the emails start. I just heard your latest podcast. It was so cool. But I've got a few questions. And then about 12 questions down, and you're looking at an essay to respond to this email. But one guy said, how about desire? You know, everything I hear about Buddhism is against desire. Don't you have to desire don't you have to have desire to meditate? Don't you have to have desire, the desire to want to achieve enlightenment, to do anything about it? And, and doesn't that desire ultimately get in the way of your nirvana or enlightenment? Because if you have desire, you can't become enlightened. So how do you get rid of that? And I'm thinking to myself, well, this is a tough one, because I'm only going to use a couple sentences. Uh, I, I don't have time to, uh, to do essays anymore. And so what I wrote back was this. I said, imagine you're living in Los Angeles. That's where you make your home. And now you have a desire to go to Los Angeles. Well, that desire will get in the way of realizing you're already in Los Angeles. And the Buddha said, we're already enlightened. So if you have a desire to be enlightened and you're already there, that's the very thing that prevents you from realizing you're okay. You're perfect just the way you are. So we need a desire initially. We need to have a desire to meditate and want to have a practice and build that momentum. And I had strong desire to want to meditate. But now I just simply meditate. It's like when I brush my teeth. I really don't have much of a desire to brush my teeth. But I do it anyway because it's the right thing to do. So I meditate now because for me it's the right thing to do. And I don't have much of a desire. So maybe next lifetime I'll get enlightened. Very cool. Let me talk a little bit now about tranquility meditation. 
also known as samatha meditation. In, in the classic way of describing this, there are four levels of tranquility. Those are called jhanas, J-H-A-N-A-S. Uh, jhana is another word for meditation. Four levels of tranquility. The first level, the first jhana, has five characteristics. It has applied thought, sustained thought, happiness, bliss, and equanimity. The second jhana, the second level of tranquility, has three characteristics. It no longer has applied thought and sustained thought. Now it has happiness, bliss, and equanimity. The third jhana has two characteristics. It no longer has pleasure or bliss. It now has only happiness and equanimity. The fourth jhana, the deepest level of tranquility or one-pointedness, only has one characteristic, and that is equanimity, perfect balance of mind. Now, what I realized when I read this the first time was that the Buddhist path is a path of renunciation. That if you're doing Buddhist meditation correctly, you're not gaining anything. You're simply getting rid of the things that prevent you from realizing you're already enlightened. So that's our task, is to get those roadblocks out of the way. And what are they? Well, we can go back to lust, greed, hatred, and delusion. Those are some of the biggest. Ignorance as well. Let's talk about these five characteristics and give them life. What do they mean? Well, applied thought and sustained thought. Let's say our object of meditation is the sensation of breath. And we've decided to become aware of the sensation of breath at the tip of the nose. We're going to be a sentry. And we're going to wait for the breath to go out and come in. And we're going to focus on the sensation. And why do we focus on the sensation? Because that sensation can only happen right now. We are bringing our mind, which is trapped in past and future, to a place of sensation that is, incur that is occurring right now. Our body can never go into past and future. It's stuck in the present moment experience of our life. And if we go to see Star Wars, our mind can go thousands of years in the future and be delighted with all the special effects. And there sits our body in this cold, dank theater with our feet stuck to the ground because a Coca-Cola had been spilled in the previous viewing. And, and I thought to myself, yeah, my mind really doesn't enjoy being with the body very much. It really likes organizing and planning for the future or regretting the past. But how often am I here in the present moment with my body? Not very. So meditation, breath meditation, becoming aware of sensation, allows us to bring our mind to the present moment experience of our body. Cool. Applied thought, sustained thought. Applying the thought forcefully taking the mind and sticking it as a sentry and holding it there. And every time it wants to run away, you bring it back with kindness and compassion. You bring it back. You bring it back. 
it's not used to not being the master. It's always been in charge. And now we're saying, okay, mind, for the first time in your life, you're going to stand sentry. And you're just going to watch the breath. Well, for me, it literally took two years for my mind to settle into the breath. And one of the techniques I used was counting. I would count my breath. Now I had to decide, inhalation, exhalation, or both. Well, I had read a book about a samurai warrior, and he said that the strongest part of our breath process is the exhalation. And when he was in combat, he would wait for his opponent to inhale. At that very moment, he would exhale and lunge. And being the samurai warrior kind of guy that I am, I thought, I'm going to watch the exhales. So I sat down and dutifully watched the exhales. But about two weeks into my meditation practice, I said, you know, I think the inhales might be better. Because the exhales really aren't doing it. And isn't the grass always greener? So I started to watch the inhales. Well, it was about the same as the exhales. I was disappointed then. I said, inhale, exhale. I'm going to count both. That's got to be it. That's going to be the most powerful technique of counting. So I eventually went back to the exhales and realized that if I wanted to meditate, I needed to stop changing my object of meditation, because that didn't allow me to see how my mind changed. I was simply seeing my technique change. Now imagine a desert island with one tree, and you happen to be there, and if you sit beneath the tree and look at a sky with clouds and use the tree as your reference point, you can actually see the movement of the clouds in the sky. And yet, if you don't have a reference point and simply look at the clouds, they seem still and unmoving. And our meditation object, that sensation of breath, is the tree. And we're watching the tree, and that allows us to see the movement of our consciousness. But as soon as we look away from the tree and back to the consciousness, we are the consciousness. We no longer see the movement. We are the movement. And that took me a whole lot of time to figure out. So this meditation object, the sensation of breath, has a couple different functions. It will be our reference point. It'll be our safe space. If we start to hallucinate and see 12-foot big ants walking in the zendo or our house, we can go back to counting our breath. Now, one of the women... I know, went to a retreat on Mount Baldy. It was a seven-day sashin. And three days into it, she saw the ants. That's why I use that as an example. But I like 50 science fiction movies, too, and they always had big <laughs> spiders and ants in those. And she said at first she was shocked. She said, am I losing my mind? This is crazy. And then she said, but it is sort of fun, and all I'm going to be doing for seven days is just sitting. So she sort of started to name them and got into the whole idea of having giant ants walking around. But then they left, and she was really disappointed because now she just had to sit again with no entertainment. So this reference point, this object of meditation, becomes our safe house. 
we can always use that as our refuge and go back to it. If we find ourselves investigating our consciousness in new and unusual ways. Now, the other three aspects are bliss, happiness, and equanimity. Bliss is a physical sensation. Happiness is a mental sensation. And equanimity is that perfect balance of mind that we're striving for. That choiceless awareness, as Suzuki Roshi would say. Zen mind, beginner's mind. After you've been meditating for a while, you can actually stop bringing your mind there and holding it there. Now it simply rests on the object of meditation without any will or intention on your part. And at this point, you're into the second jhana. You have a greater sense of bliss and rapture in the body, a greater sense of happiness in the mind, and a stronger sense of equanimity. In order to go further, we need to let something go. And what we're going to let go is the bliss and pleasure of our body. Now, that might sound like a big price to pay because after a while in your meditation practice, you have like, I'll speak for myself, sometimes there's like these warm sensations running up and down my spine and the hair in the back of my neck stands up and I just sort of tingle and feel really good. And it's, it's wonderful. And yet, if I want to go further... I gotta let that go. And, and I couldn't figure out why. I couldn't figure out what the problem was. Well, the problem was, if there's bliss and pleasure, there's also pain. Now, most of us would like to give up the pain, but not the bliss and pleasure. If you can figure out how to give up the bliss and pleasure, you are at the same time giving up the pain, and now going into the third jhana, which only has two characteristics, happiness, and equanimity. And you know what that means. That means we have one more level to go, and we've got to give something else up. And we're not going to give up the equanimity. We're going to have to give up our happiness too. But if we give up our happiness, we're giving up our sadness as well. And when we figure out how to do that, and are successful... Now we're in the fourth jhana. We have one characteristic left. Perfect balance of mind. You are seeing your life, you are seeing reality exactly the way it are, is, without being hindered with wanting pleasure or avoiding pain, wanting happiness or avoiding sadness. You've thrown away your rose-colored glasses and there you sit like Neo in the Matrix. He woke up too. And what did he eat? He ate porridge. No more steaks for him. That was an illusion. So now we look at our food, and they're not jelly donuts. You know, this is medicine that allows us to stay alive another day. How could anybody be attracted to that or repulsed by that? Cool. And are you ever a victim if you have perfect balance of mind? No. There's no one to defend at this level of reality. Yeah. Cool. Sound, it's the ear vibrating. Smell, it's the nose smelling. Taste, it's the tongue tasting. Touch, it's the body feeling. Mind, it's the mind thinking. That's your reality. 
you are in perfect balance. You have reconnected to the world around you in a very, very special way. You are no longer self, you are now selfless. Every man, woman, child, dog, cat, fish is now connected to you in a very personal way. And at this moment, the great compassion arises and you become a bodhisattva. Your heart is broken, never to mend again. Because you realize in a very real and personal way that guy on the street who has no place to live is part of you now. And you can no longer turn away from him and forget him or ignore him. You are called to service, whether you want to be or not. That person starving in any country in the world is now part of you. It's a profound experience. It's the enlightenment experience. It's the experience of the bodhisattva. It's a life-changing experience. And at this point, your life is no longer your own. Your life is now committed to a life of service. Mother Teresa, for me, is a perfect example of that. I often wonder, does she want to be in India doing that? Or did she have a choice? Maybe she didn't have a choice. Maybe those people were her, and she was him. And did Mother Teresa ever take a vacation? How could you take a vacation if that was your reality? Where would you go where no one suffers? Even if you went to Hawaii on a black pearl beach, you'd be looking for sunburn victims, wouldn't you? <laughs> so this one form of meditation allows you to transform in a very special way. And in the Pali Canon of early Buddhism, it said the Buddha was a bodhisattva at least 550 times before he achieved his nirvana as Siddhartha Gautama. So he had been practicing meditation before. He had achieved some pretty profound mind states, places of transformation that none of us can even think about at this point because our practice is so new or in its infancy. And here it was lifetime after lifetime. And in the final lifetime, he rediscovered insight meditation, vipassana. It had been lost to the world. The meditation the Buddhas before him had done. He was the 28th Buddha according to some traditions of early Buddhism. So 27 Buddhas before him had practiced this insight meditation. It had been lost to the world through his effort, insight, and compassion. He rediscovered it, and it worked. And now he was no longer dependent on the conditions of the Zendo or the ashram for his enlightenment experience. Now he was enlightened or in nirvana all the time. All the time. Very cool. Well, that's it. That was class three, part one. Hope you found it interesting. Hope you found it useful. If you'd like to know more about me, please visit kusala.info. That's K-U-S-A-L-A dot info. If you'd like to download some free e-books on Buddhism, please visit buddhabooks.info. 
That's buddhabooks.info. Well, until the next time, until the next podcast, be happy, be peaceful, and most of all, be free from suffering. <laughs>